You're listening to Talking Threat Intelligence, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the new challenges of today's threat landscape. Each episode, we connect with some of the world's leading practitioners to share stories from the front lines of corporate security. And now, on to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Robert Value, And joining me today is Danita Groh, founder and CEO of Athena Worldwide and NannyGuards and managing partner at LaMarshall. Danita, thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you for the invitation. Now, Danita, last time we chatted, you and I had a great conversation about the communication gap between OSINT analysts and the protectors on the ground that are safeguarding clients, and also how this communication gap can jeopardize the safety of the protectee. I thought that was really, really fascinating. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Well, I would assume, because as someone who has been doing both professions, and I have seen both fields, I would assume that the problem here comes from the fact that we have two professions uh, when they have different backgrounds and experience and training, and they are trying to operate and help each other within the same industry, which is security industry. And you have these two fields that they have to find a common communication level, I would say, so they can better, the one part can convey the message to the other part that can be, that is using this information on the field. Right. Well, this is what I was really excited about having you on today, because obviously your background has been working on the ground with clients uh, using a lot of OSINT analysts, and now you've transitioned more to the intelligence side. So I think you're going to have a really, really interesting perspective to share with our listeners today in terms of what are some of the problems that you see and how analysts can do a better job for the protectors on the ground, which I'm really fascinated to explore. So let's dive in then a little bit. Can you give listeners some examples of that communication gap that you've seen or tell about a time where this has happened to you? Well, unfortunately, when I was the, the agent on the field and I was using the reports from the Intel analyst that was working for us, it was many times when uh, we had this kind of this kind of issues, I would say, and I was receiving information that was outdated. Timing is very critical when you are on the ground with your client and with your team. So the information was accurate, but at that moment was either outdated or it didn't give us a lot of time to prepare and use it for our you know, risk mitigation purposes. So when we were receiving the information, the only thing we could do as a team on the field was to be more reactive than proactive. And in our work, we are trying a lot to be proactive. So one thing was outdated information. Another thing has been unrelated information, unrelated to the client, to the mission on the ground. I'm going to give you an example. You know, having an earthquake in New Zealand, I don't need to know about it if my if I'm with my client in the States, for example. Or I would say sometimes we either had insufficient intel. And I found out that we on the ground, the agents on the ground, with our very limited time and um resources, I would say, we could dig and find more information through our cell phones than the analysts were finding, you know, those people who were sitting behind the screens, the multiple screens, as you know, and having a lot of resources and tools and platforms that they could utilize. So to me, that was apparently something that there's something missing here. Why me on the ground can find more information on my phone than you, uh, who have more access and resources and time on your hand, uh, you know, cannot find those, cannot dig those information. So what are some of the negative consequences that can occur as a result of this communication gap that you see? Well, we may have a lot of risks that uh, we 
need to take care of now and mitigate and try to mitigate and more threats to, to prevent. When we're talking about security industry, people have this misguided opinion that we are there to prevent any physical harm. Well, we are there to prevent any physical harm to our clients, but also prevent any kind of anything that can be turned embarrassing for him, um, can have a, a bad effect on his, his reputation, and also anything that can be disruptive to clients' daily life, because we're talking about clients who are C-suite corporates and multi-billion corporations, and their time is very valuable. If I have to change something in their daily schedule, it translates to them that something very uh, significant. So I want to make sure that I have a very good idea about what the risks that we're dealing with and the threats. So as a security team, I can do a better risk mitigation and I can take all the necessary measurements to prevent any of those uh, bad situations, I would say. I like that broad perspective that you had about risk, thinking about the risk much more broadly. Like you mentioned, any kind of embarrassment to the executive can hurt the company's value or impede their ability to get deals done in the future or some. The famous example I always think of is, I think it was like 20 years ago with Bill Gates getting pied in the face, which was not a, a physical threat to his safety, but certainly hurt his reputation and was a major embarrassment for him to deal with, right? Which is something we also have to consider. We call that a threat to his image, basically. Right. Um, because it meant that he was one of the examples. We have a lot of examples. Even today, there are many incidents that, that happens and, and you say, okay, what was the security team doing? Exactly. Well, then let's dive into some of the, the tips. And, and this was where I thought was really interesting from our conversation previously of, uh, and now something that you're doing as now the OSINT analysts behind the scenes working at the computer that I thought you had an interesting perspective on. What are some of the tips that you would offer other OSINT analysts that maybe haven't had the chance to work in the field that to, to mitigate that communication gap and provide better intelligence for people on the ground? So this suggestion would go on, on the both sides. It will go from the, to the OSINT analyst who didn't have a chance to have an experience in the EP industry, but also uh, it would go to the EP agents that, didn't ha that don't have an experience about OSINT. I would say that when you are working along with different teams that belong to different professions, try to have a good and clear communication with them. For example, as an EP agent, I would like the EP agents to tell the OSIN analyst what information they're looking for and why. If the analyst knows why, it will help them to understand better what they will be looking for. And have a good understanding about each other's position and, and uh uh, job requirements, I would say, but also job functions. It's very, very important. If you cannot gain experience in somebody else's field, I would say then talk with these agents. Ask them what they do on their daily operations, what things they have to take care of. In that way, you are getting a little bit of, a, of an idea what they are against of and, and uh, what they need to do. I could just imagine like just being able to put yourself in the shoes for a little bit is going to allow you to have a bit more empathy for the person that's receiving that type of information. Well, it's it's a teamwork and we are all working together to uh, keep a client safe. So let's let's get to know each other and help each other and fill the gaps. We have one goal, the client. And also I would also ask from both of the sides to have a good understanding about the client, who the client is, what the needs are. The security needs are about this specific client and how these needs change constantly and can change within minutes, basically. So yeah, good communication. 
I want to dive a little bit deeper on that point that you just mentioned. So when you start working with a new client and you have a new protectee, what are the kind of questions that you're looking for and, and what are you looking at when you start that assignment? Well, there are specific uh, questions that we have to address that help us to build the risk and threat assessment. So we have a better understanding about the risk that we are dealing here and what we should do, what measures we should take against this to, to lower the threat level, basically. Uh, and you will be provided with some answers, but no matter what answer you are provided, you always have to do your own research. You always have to dig on the background. And sometimes clients are not... They don't feel comfortable with uh, disclosing some information to you because either they feel embarrassed or either they're not so much cooperative. And sometimes we have seen this also with uh, different teams, you know, a team doesn't want to give you information because they don't feel so much, you know, working along you, along with you, I would say. Um, so always you have to do your own research on the background and as you start working for a client, you will figure it out that day by day, you get to know more information about this client and his daily life that is going to give you good, I would say good hints for your further research. I had Jerry Hying on this podcast a while back, who does a lot of uh, protection for high net worth individuals and celebrities. And he would tell me about instances where he was shocked to be like, what kind of threats do you see asking clients? Or, you know, is there anyone that has a grudge against you? And then just shocked at people not revealing information, do a little bit of open source research. And then there would be this individual and that individual and this individual and all kinds of things that a client would never feel comfortable revealing for whatever reason. There are multiple reasons that we can think of. And again, it is our, and sometimes the client doesn't know what to consider as a risk to tell you, because the client doesn't know about the profession. He doesn't know what to tell you. So it's up to us to figure it out and, and discover the risks and discover uh, the potential uh, people that may, may want to harm him. And let's not forget that things are changing constantly. For example, if we have a client that uh, we know the risks and suddenly he, the company that he has shares with uh, take a huge decision regarding, I will give an example regarding a drug, a medicine, now we have many people being angry at this specific company. So the client is dealing with the risk that he didn't cause it. Okay. Right. So there are things that, like that that we, we, have, we have to consider. And let's not forget that before and during the elections, we had people being targeted because of their political views and supports and affiliations. During COVID times, we had people being targeted because of, again, their, their views on, on COVID. And also we had clients some Asian clients being targeted just because they were Asian. So constantly it's something that changes. And when we have big corporations now, IT corporations that are firing people, we find their corporates to be in at risk because of uh, the, the company's decision. Right. I think about recently too, that point that you just mentioned with the Russian-Ukraine conflict. And I remember it was the NHL. They have tons of Russian athletes and they were all suddenly under threat for no other reason than being Russian. Or if you're a business that just happens to have some stores or some operations in Russia and your company makes a decision, now every member of that executive team, if they have any kind of connection with Russia at all, are suddenly, no one on that executive team had anything to do with invading Ukraine, but you gotta be aware of how that perception impacts the safety of your client. Um, I wanna transition back to the communications gap and a couple of points that you mentioned in our conversation last week. One insight that I thought was really interesting or, or complaint that you had was sometimes analysts sending too much information. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? 
We have to think that when we are the agents on the field, we have very limited time or no time at all to be to look on our phones. Because you have to have your, to have your eyes on the client, you have to have the eyes on and be you know aware of your surroundings. So for me, looking at my phone, it's taking my eyes from something that is very important. And I want to make sure that every time I have to look at my phone, I am getting on to the point information relevant to my client and on-time information. So it has to be the general updates of what's going on, unless it's extremely relevant to your specific client at that moment. More information could actually be a bad thing. More information can be a bad thing because it's taking my observation, I would say, from, from something much more important because I am not sitting in an office and I'm outside in the crowd probably with, you know, in traffic and I have to be aware because when you are when you're dealing with clients and you're supporting them to different places, you have to constantly be aware about their surroundings. And if this happens, what should I do with my client? Where should I take my client in a safer place? So when I'm going to look on my phone, I want to make sure that it's something relevant, kept short, basically, and to the point. I love those bullet points that you had just in the, the concise points being, being very, very important there, but just helping people that haven't been in your shoes before on the EP side to kind of imagine what you're doing day to day, which I think that's the toughest thing when you're the analyst sitting in you know the GSOC or, or wherever you might be doing this from, just imagining that environment. So I, I think that's um, a really, really relevant point for listeners. Another point that you made that you sometimes were frustrated with, the quote that I had from you, you was that the OSINT analyst needs to be able to read beyond the data. Can you can you talk a bit more about that too? Well, again, this comes down to experience and also an analyst has to make basically a prediction. So these are the information that I'm finding online and I have to give a prediction to the agent on the ground, according to my findings, how this can affect the client. And what we said about his physical daily life and reputation. So an analyst has to be able to see beyond the data that he is receiving. How is this that I'm finding can affect the specific client? How can affect this specific trip that the client is going to have on that foreign country? How can this turn bad? Basically, I want the analyst to start asking a lot of what ifs and whys. Hmm. Because we want to make that kind of, as I said, prediction. Right. Let's go back into your job as the OSINT analyst. What are some of the assignments and projects that you're working with your teams every single day that seem to be adding the most value? Well, it always depends on the client. As I said, each client has its own security needs, I would say. We have been working with clients where they have children, teenagers, and we we were assigned to do a social media investigation and monitoring about their children, what information about their children are available, I would say, and how this information can be used later on against the children or or these families. Some of the information could be used for blackmailing. Other clients, we were doing a research to figure out and find out what is being said about them. What is the public opinion about these clients? Because as you said, you brought uh, a good example with the Russian and Ukrainian war recently. You know, with whatever is happening uh, in some countries, anything that is Russian, any company that it's, it's Russian and automatically is considered something bad. So if you had a client that is a Russian client, you want to know that if he goes tomorrow and travel to this country, how he would, would he be at risk because he's Russian and because the public opinion in that country is really bad regarding Russians. So we do a lot of that kind of research and social media monitoring, not only for risk and threat assessments, but also to have a better understanding 
what is being said about the client, what kind of information regarding this client is available online, that not information being manipulated, photoshopped, for example. And we have used in the past a lot of maritime OSINT research. Uh, we had clients in different uh, islands and we wanted to make sure that the vessels that are around this client, that are on this island, excuse me, and close to the villa or the hotel the client we're staying are people of no concerns to us. And sometimes we found people of concerns or we even found paparazzis. Different, different examples, I would say. It really depends on the client, but I like that point that you mentioned about the family members, because that always tends to be a big weakness in a lot of security programs. What are the common OSINT mistakes that you see a lot of beginners making? Most of them, they don't seem to be able to think outside the box. You have to get to that rabbit hole deep because you need to, to find information related to the client. And sometimes you have to, have to, to get a small information that you can use it as a stepping stone that will lead you to something that is going to be more relevant and more significant for client safety. Some other OSINT analysts, they're not skilled enough or experienced enough to do a good link analysis. We always have to look into people, you know, patterns, behaviors, how people are connected, how events are connected with these people or different organizations. Some of them are biased. And this comes down also to the EP agents. We are all biased about specific topics. There's nothing wrong about being biased. You know, think, people think, oh, I'm not biased because to them, it means they are racist. Bias doesn't mean you're racist necessarily. Biases help us with processing information and taking decisions. However, when it comes down to intelligence analysis and when we do risk and threat assessments, our biases can affect the result of this assessment. So it is very much needed for an intel analyst to have a good understanding about their own biases and see how the biases may affect their research and their reports. Because if my biases is affecting my reports, that means that the report, it may be not related to the client and totally, I'm missing totally the risks that are more true, I would say. Right. I like that point that you made about thinking outside the box there and a lot about persistence. I've had a couple of other OSINT analysts on and I've asked them the question, you know, what is the best trait of a successful OSINT analyst? And a lot of the times the theme that comes up again and again is just having that persistence to keep digging and looking in unconventional places for those pivot points that can solve an investigation of some sort. But going back to the biases thing, what are the best strategies that you can recommend maybe that you've done yourself or that you've advised others for addressing their biases other than trying just to be aware of them? Well, first of all, for me, in order to work with my biases, I have to understand what biases do I have? Now we all have biases, okay? And my biases are that I have more empathy toward older people and toward children. So for me, I must make sure that when I do my OSINT research, I must make sure that I take into consideration my own biases because if I have more empathy toward older people, that means that in my reports, I may skip the fact that an older person can be someone who can be a criminal, can be someone who may want to harm my client. So everybody, first of all, we have to do a research about our biases. And that also changes due to the country we are living in our culture. If you ask somebody, describe me a terrorist, they will give you a very specific description. And we all know today that this, that description is very wrong because we have different kinds of terrorists. So 
it's very important for us to be able to know what our biases are and when those biases are affecting our job. It's okay to have them. Just don't let them affect your job when it comes down to this specific field. And I will also bring an example here why we should work on our biases. Besides the fact that we were going to have an accurate report, Intel report, when you are aware about your biases and you know that you have trained yourself so your biases don't affect your job, you will be more confident about the decision you're making, decisions you're making. For example, after the Manchester Arena attack, and as the investigations were going, one of the security guards said that, yep, I saw the terrorist. I saw that there was something wrong about that person, but I failed to go and confront him because I was afraid that I'm going to be labeled as racist. So that security guard did the biggest part of the job, which was identify what's wrong behavior, identify what's, there's something wrong there, you know? But he was afraid that by going and confronting that person and asking what he's doing there and doing that first interview with the suspect, I would say, on the spot, he didn't do anything because he was afraid that he was going to be labeled as a racist. See, I'll throw this out there as this is more of a debate point here. I had Mike Evans on the show recently, the head of intelligence at Securitas, and one of his points that he made about biases was just embrace them, just accept that you have these. Mm -hmm. But his point was, it's why it's so important to build a very diverse team around you, that people that will naturally challenge your bias during those conversations. So if you're naturally liberal, hiring people that are more conservative, or if you're older, hiring a younger staff or whatever, so people that can constantly challenge you day to day. What do you think of that point? I agree with that point. And I would say that sometimes it's not even necessary to have someone from a diversive position, I would say, field to have that. Sometimes you just need a broader experience. So for me, as an EP agent, having the opportunity to work in different countries, I got to know different cultures. I got to know different clientele. So now I would say that I have a better cultural and religious etiquette because I am more aware about specific cultures. And I do agree that, you know, we have to embrace our biases. It's really interesting when you throw this topic to the security industry, 90% of the people, they're going to resist to this. They're going to say, I don't have biases (laughs) because they believe that it's something so wrong and they don't understand that biases are, can be something good. You know, because it's the easiest way for your brain to process some information quickly and take a decision. However, it's bad if you allow the bad biases to affect your job. Because if I'm seeing two people, for example, on my reports, and one of them is a female and the other one is a male, and I say a female cannot be a risk because society has raised this with the understanding that women cannot be causing, you know, horror attacks and things like that but that female can be a suicide bomber so that is why it's good to understand embrace your biases but also understand them and know when your biases are not allowing you to do properly your job before i got into security i used to work in risk management in the financial sector and so we'd be dealing with lots of investors and how these same biases impact your ability to keep clients safe the same biases that impact your ability to allocate capital and invest properly. And so people would have the same attitude, as you mentioned in the security field, they'd be like, oh, all those other people have biases. Oh, I see that confirmation bias, that bias, this bias, but I don't, I don't make those kind of mistakes. Whereas like if with the lesson that I always got from it was saying, 
okay, I have all these biases. I don't know how I'm making these mistakes in the moment necessarily, but to approach your decision-making with a little bit more humility than, than just assuming, oh, I see it in other people, but I'm like a computer when it comes to my decision-making. No, 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 you're not. <laughs> it, it, it's exactly the same with people in the security industry. It's exactly the same. And sometimes we just have to reprogram our way of thinking and how we are processing information and how we're getting to a conclusion because you have to be accurate. When you're responsible for somebody's well-being and safety, you can make mistakes. They're bigger uh, you don't consequences. have a second chance. Yeah. 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 You don't get a mulligan. It's not like when I go play golf and there's a lot of bad shots or recording these podcast episodes. I want to re-say something. No, you want to get uh, one chance with the client's safety. And if you lose one client, chances yeah. are nobody else is going to hire you again. No, 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 no. <laughs> All right, Danita, let's take this thing home. What's the main takeaway you want listeners to remember from our conversation today? Well, I want them to understand that this is a team effort. So you have to have a good cycle of communication with anyone involved on a specific detail about the specific client. Whatever information you find, you have to pass it on to the team on the ground. And again, make sure that there's short to the point accurate. And for the teams on the ground, they have to, again, pass whatever information they find to the analyst team. All right. And what are you working on now? And how can listeners get in touch? We believe that intelligence is much, much needed nowadays than it was decades ago. And we believe that each company, small or medium size, should have protective intelligence on their side. So we are providing to small and medium companies protective intelligence services. And we also teach EP agents on awesome skills because nowadays, from our experience, we got to that point that we believe that Everyone who is in the protective detail of a client must have basic OSINT research skills and understanding. It's something that anyone can do it. You just need the critical thinking to do it, and you just need to know where to look, basically. All right. And uh, anywhere listeners can get in touch if they want to reach out? The easiest way, they can reach out to me through LinkedIn. They can uh, read articles related to uh, intelligence analysis and to EB industry. So that would be the best place someone can reach out to us. All right, Danita, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Again, that was Danita Grow, founder and CEO of Athena Worldwide and Nanny Guards, as well as managing partner at Le Marshall LLC. Thanks again for tuning into another episode of Talking Threat Intelligence. As always, never miss an episode by subscribing to the show at all the normal places you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like more insights on building a successful threat intelligence program, be sure to check out our resource page at lifebraphinc.com slash blog. That's lifebraphinc.com slash blog. See you next time.